0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from Luke chapter 19 verses 1 through 10 and then John chapter 20 verses 21 and 22. He entered Jericho and was passing through and behold there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich and he was seeking to see who Jesus was but on account of the crowd he could not because he was small in stature. The half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And then from John 20, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. This is God's word.
1: Amen. Thank you, Susan. Good morning. It's good to see so many of you here this morning. School must be starting um, tomorrow for most of you. Uh, And because if you've been here this summer, and we've been talking about two services, you might have thought all summer long, why in the world will we go to two services? There's so much room in the room. But if you're here this morning, you can see that this is what we expect the fall to be. And uh, we have, from the very beginning, desired to be a church where there was a culture of evangelism and of inviting non-Christian people and of pursuing non-Christian people to come and worship with us. And the reality of the last few years is that though we've tried to grow through the multiplication of church planting, that's a slower work than even we anticipated. And uh, the reality has been that for some time now, there really has been no room in the room for people uh, to invite other people. And so we are hoping to go to two services in about three weeks, and that that will mean that the crowd will be less in each of those services, probably about half of what it is, uh, which means there will be plenty of room for us to begin to do that great work again of inviting uh, people uh, who need to come hear the good news of the gospel to come. And so that's kind of the idea uh, behind that that move to two services. And so what we want to do for the next three weeks as we lead up to it then is to talk about just that, what we hope uh, is going to happen as a result of that or one of the reasons why we would make that move in that transition. And, and so one of our goals for our church as a, as a staff, as a leadership and, and so forth is over the next year to really labor and work hard and pray that God would begin to develop a, a um, culture, a movement and culture of personal evangelism among us. So we want to spend three weeks talking about that. What, what, do, we, what do we mean by that? What exactly is involved in that? How do we pull that off? What, what do we need to happen? What do we need God to do in our hearts to see that happen? Because, we, again, we want, to be, we want to be a people equipped with the good news to take that good news to the people who so uh, most desperately need to hear it. Okay? Okay? And this morning we come to this passage from Luke's Gospel in chapter 19, and really we're just going to primarily look at this one verse there at the end of Luke 19, but use the story of Zacchaeus itself as an illustration of what Jesus is teaching there in in verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. And there are three things that I want to pull out of that verse and of this passage for us this morning. The first is I want us to see God's intention. And it's very clear that God's intention here expressed through Jesus' words is that he himself has come in the person of Jesus to seek and save the lost. So first, God's intention. Second, though, we also see an obstruction uh, to this work that Jesus has come to do. And you see it in the response of the found. It's, it's interesting that the, the, the problem of the gospel going to the lost often resides in the found. So the intention and the obstruction, and then finally the solution. And the solution is that we would be a people who would live out of an experience of being touched by God's grace in a really profound way. Okay, So God's intention, our obstruction, and then the ultimate solution to a personal evangelism explosion happening in our church as we move towards two services. So let's begin just there with verse 10. Let me read it again. The Son of Man came to seek and save the lost, we're told. Now commentators have called this Jesus' mission statement. Christians believe that Jesus is not just a man, Not just a great moral teacher, even. We believe that Jesus Christ is God who became man. But why? See, isn't that the question? I mean, it's a a scandalous idea, isn't it? That we would claim to believe that that this person, Jesus, is actually the, uh, the incarnate, eternal, living God of the universe. So why? Why would God go to all of that trouble? And we find our answer in this verse. He did it to seek and to save the lost. Think of the line in that B.B. Warfield sermon we quote, quite often imitating the Incarnation, where he said, into the immeasurable calm of the divine blessedness, he permitted this thought to enter, I will die for men. And so mighty was his love, so colossal his divine purpose to save, that he thought nothing of his divine majesty, nothing of his unsullied blessedness, nothing of his equality with God, but absorbed in us, in our needs, our misery, our helplessness, he came. But you see, not just the act of leaving heaven for earth is defined by this mission. It was what Jesus was doing all the time, every day, everywhere he went with everybody that he came across. And we see this in the scene in Luke 19 as Jesus comes into Jericho. He, I mean, you know, you read the story and it really tells this way. He seeks Zacchaeus out. He stops in the middle of this procession that's going down Main Street in town. He looks up into the tree. He calls out to the man by name. And then he invites himself over to dinner. I mean, all of the initiative and the whole story is his. He's the one driving all of these things. And so it's a picture of the way God works in our lives too. What theologians call prevenient grace, which I like Anne Lamott's, I mean, it's ironic, but I like Anne Lamott's definition uh, best when she says that this idea of grace is love that goes before us and meets us on the way. So when you woke up this morning, if you're in Christ, when you woke up this morning, you woke up into God's love. It was there. Before you did anything good or bad. That's the way God's love works. You remember the verse that says we love because he first loved us? That just means that his love comes first. If we love him, it's because he loved us first. If we choose him, it's because he's already chosen us. Zacchaeus is seeking Jesus here, we're told. But it is because Jesus has come to Jericho seeking him. God goes first in salvation. That's a very important doctrine. We'll come back to it in a little while. But it's very important to see that, that God goes first in salvation. And these verbs here in verse 10 are infinitives. Aren't you impressed I know that? I'm just kidding. Never mind. It's like in a little study Bible. They just put it there, so don't be impressed. But it is this little nuanced thing like that. Sometimes these things are really important. It's a bit awkward to translate because they really are verbal nouns. And so the point is that Jesus, this is not just what Jesus does. It is really the essence of who he is. He is a seeker and a savior. That's really the point of Luke 19.10. Not that he seeks and saves, but that foundational to who he is in his essence, he is a seeker and a savior, savior. In Jesus, we see God's intention in all of his workings of providence and also in the particular ways that he works in individual lives in all that he does, in everything he does. He's motivated, he's driven, the goal, the end is always he's seeking to save. Okay, now if Jesus came to seek and save the lost, then that means for us that we have been sent by him to seek and to save the lost. Do you hear that? If he came for this purpose, then he has sent us for this purpose. Isn't that what he says in John 20? As the Father sent me, so I send you. And so we don't believe in throneness, we believe in sentness. Life is not a product of an accidental collision of its subatomic particles. We've not been thrown by some impersonal force into this chaos that we call life to make the most of whatever opportunity we've been given. No, we've not been thrown into the world. We believe, very clearly, we've been sent into the world. Which means, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whoever you're doing it with, you're there on purpose, so be there on purpose. You're there on purpose, so be there on purpose. God has sent you there. If you're, This is why we have the kids stand up, right? If, if you're a middle school student or a high school student, Jesus has sent you to the school that you're at, even if you're homeschooled. If you're a teacher, Jesus has sent you to that school, to that principal, to that faculty, to that community, to those kids in your class. If you own a business, Jesus has sent you to those employees those customers, those suppliers. If you t- teach kids worship over here, whatever class it is, I mean, you know, Ashley was at home last night on the board, kind of, you know, any, mini mo, assigning people places. However, all of that thing works, and you get settled. It's not her fault you're in the class that you're in. It's God's fault. He's put you there. You're sent there. That's how this works. You've been sent into the lives of those kids. If you're a mom, Jesus has sent you to your children. Whatever neighborhood you live in, Jesus has sent you to live there. And if you, you have to move because your job change, changes, he's sending you wherever you're going. You see, the question is not, i mean, this has got to change in my own life, okay? The question is not so much, where is God sending you? That's where I get tripped up, because I don't always know the answer to that. The question is, where are you? You've been sent there. So be there on purpose. See, the important question is not not where are you, but wherever you are, are you there on purpose? Wherever you are, are you there on purpose? But for what purpose? What did the Father send the Son to do? What was his mission? To seek and to save the lost. And therefore, what has Jesus sent us to do? What is our mission? It's the same i tell you, the first time this really began to come home in my life uh, my, was, was in college. My first semester at Florida State, I went through Fraternity Rush. I was a Lamb Kai legacy, so I figured that was the way that I, that I would go. But uh, quite honestly, uh, I didn't like those guys very much when I showed up at the house. If you're a Lamb please don't be offended by that. It just was that moment and that time at that place, and I just didn't feel like I fit well. And, and and really, as a, a growing up in the church, it was very very it repulsed me a little bit, and it was really scary. And the fraternity scene is a really scary place. And that was 20 years ago. I really can't even imagine now. So instead of a fraternity, I got involved, and This is you know, instead of a fraternity, I got involved in a college ministry at First Baptist Church, Tallahassee, where 100 students worshipped every Sunday mornings, including Bobby Bowden and the football team. And the college group became my primary community during my freshman year. Uh, but something happened toward the end of the first semester that I was there at Florida State. I experienced it, and this is, if, this won't, if this doesn't convince you of God's providence, I don't know what will. But I experienced a spiritual awakening, maybe a conversion, uh, during my first semester of my freshman year at Florida State University. God is a God of miracles. So if you've sent kids off, and you're living with all kinds of fearful things about what are, what's going to happen to them there, Right? I, I really think that I was converted my freshman year in my dorm room one night uh, at Florida State University. Okay? God is God of providence. And it probably, actually, this experience that I had was probably more of a call to ministry, but I knew that I had been sent. I, I, I walked away from this just this one night. I can remember feeling like, okay, God has sent me to this place. And if he sent me to this place, then, then if I understand his word right, then I should be living as a missionary on my campus. So I went home that Christmas break, and I came back, and I made some decisions. I went through rush again, but for a very different purpose this time. Um, I wanted to join a fraternity because I figured that was the best place on campus to be a missionary. And I remember, it was, it was interesting, my friends at our Sunday school class uh, that I was a part of were really worried about me. I think they actually asked people to pray for me because they were afraid I was going to be, you know, a backslider or whatever it is that you would call that. Uh, but it was a real turning point in my life. I chose I chose to really give my life to this, to this group of guys that were, were did not share my faith uh, in, the, in the slightest. I chose a fraternity that was small uh, and not a real popular um, or particularly athletic group of guys. But we, we got on well with one another, and so I pledged. Now, when I pledged, you got to know, I told them, if you physically assault me in any way or if you ask me to get naked, I'll quit. And on my way out, I will bring the whole thing down, okay? That's what I told them. <laughs> I told him, my father's an attorney. I will mess you up, so don't don't mess with me. Okay, that's really this. I mean, I'm serious. I threatened and all of those things, and they still they still somehow they wanted me. I don't know. Um, so so um, I was openly Christian. I didn't drink. I went to parties, but not to party. I took care of people who had had too much to drink. I was I actually very quickly became uh, the vice president. So I was the one they sent out because I was the only sober one to talk to the police when they showed up to break the party up in at night. <laughs> And I, and I patiently shared uh, Jesus with that house of guys. I lived there for a year. I heard their confessions. I took them to church with me on Sunday mornings of particularly painful regret. And God did a lot of really neat things. I had three little brothers in my two years. And all three of them uh, in, in that experience in college came uh, to know Christ while we were in college. And so I, I have a lot of stories, and I could tell you. Um, But it was this profound kind of this moment in my personal life, in my personal story, where I, I really realized that Jesus came to seek and save the lost, and that must mean that I've been sent, even in a place like Florida State, to seek and save the lost. So, kids, if you're going to college, if you're going to high school, would you dream like that about the places God's sending you? Now, let's talk about some applications of this. You see, if we have been sent to seek and to save the lost, then as a part of our discipleship, we have to develop strategies for doing personal evangelism. It's not optional. And I would tell you, my family has tried to live our lives this way. I mean, that, really, that, that experience there really kind of imprinted itself on the way I wanted to live my whole life. And so we've tried to live this way towards our neighbors, towards the people we've played youth sports with and so forth. It's why we planted a church. But here's the irony, okay? Ironically, the further uh, we get into church planning, the further away we've gotten from the things that led us to want to do church planning in the first place. It's harder, I would tell you, it's harder for me to live like this intentionally towards non-Christians than it was seven years ago. Now, Tim Rice, my mentor and pastor in Lakeland, is the master at this. Uh, but you have a congregation of people that you're trying to take care of, and there's not a lot of time and energy left over. So I tell you, we're fighting to figure this out. We are. And even with decisions about school for our kids, this is constantly something that, we are, that we're thinking about and thinking through. And so I'll give you a little piece of advice. That word evangelize means to gospelize. It refers to Uh, taking somebody who doesn't know very much about the gospel and teaching them the gospel. And what I've learned, and what I don't want to be an excuse, but what has helped me not live with the kind of regret I'm prone to live with is that sometimes the people who need to hear the gospel the most are those who've been in the church the longest. And a lot of my personal evangelism has been happening inside the church, not outside. And that's uniquely true of my work, okay? So you're not off the hook. I'm the only one off the hook in the room, okay? It's unique to... To, my job is to equip and to mobilize you to live out your faith in the world. But I pray that I lead us well and that our pastors do so, that we can find the balance. So pray for us. But let me ask, what are your personal strategies for evangelism? In three weeks, we're transitioning to two services. The room's going to be half as full as it is today. We're doing that on purpose. We're hoping it's like a spiritual defibrillation that shocks our system, creates a heartbeat of evangelism among us. So who are you going to bring with you? Who's on your heart? Who's around you God's already working in? How are you living intentionally to those around you who are lost? What are our strategies for personal evangelism? But let me apply this another way. If we've been sent to seek and to save the lost, then we have to work hard to be a church that is welcoming to non-Christian people. I can't seem to get Jesus' words out of my head from Matthew 9. I've come not to call the righteous but sinners, he says. Eugene Peterson has the best the best paraphrase of that verse. He says, um, I have come not to coddle insiders, but to invite outsiders. So becoming outward face, being for the city, uh, and all of these things, what does it require of us? Churches who maintain over time the kind of dynamism that we've experienced in these first few years that we've lived together as a church are the ones who are able to continually change and, and, excuse me, continually challenge Not coddle the people inside to live for those on the outside. So the idolatry that you have to repent of as we make this move is that you would be more concerned with your spiritual needs being met than with seeing people come to faith. The idolatry that I have to repent of is that I can become more concerned with you liking me than with leading the church toward seeking in saving the lost. More than that, we have to intentionally organize ourselves. We have to make decisions about programs and structures to prioritize evangelism. Studies are clear that typically, I don't know if you know this, but a church's evangelistic lifespan lasts about 15 years. And after 15 years, we're, six, we're almost 7 years old, after 15 years there's very little evangelism happening, very few conversions, because the internal pressures and structures have become prohibitive Because you see, at first, all of the emphasis is put on inviting new people and so forth. But as those new people come and as the crowds begin to grow, then the organizational energy begins to go towards maintaining the church internally, developing ministries and programs and building buildings to suit the desires of those in the church. And we're finite, so that leaves very little time and energy and motivation to reaching those outside. Okay, but let me apply it one more way. If you've been... If we've been sent to seek and to save the lost, then we have to to call people to conversion. It has to be a part of what we do. And I don't know if you've noticed, but when I talk about non-Christian people, I usually use that word non-Christian, not pagan, or not unbeliever, and definitely not lost. I have a hard time even saying it. He's lost. It sounds so smug. It's probably because of the way I heard it used um, in the past. Calling someone lost is offensive. It's an insult, isn't it? And so... We are so strangled as a culture by political correctness that liberalism pushes that if we're not careful, we will look at our friends and neighbors and loved ones who don't. We won't look at them uh, correctly. We won't look at those who don't believe correctly. Liberalism is really opposed to the idea of conversion. I mean, the unpardonable sin uh, is is to look at somebody else and tell them you're wrong. But isn't that, in some sense, what evangelism is? Liberalism says that love is ask, and asking somebody to change our incompatible but that's intolerance we're told but the Bible says that love that love and letting someone else who is lost stay lost are incompatible those are the things that are incompatible the Bible doesn't say that those around us but outside of Christ need a little help you know they just need a little push towards spiritual things that might improve their lives some it says that they're lost that their whole approach to living life is wrong that they need to be converted and if we don't believe that then we are the ones that are lost and in our stories, Zacchaeus is lost. This is a bad dude, okay? It's not. We sing little songs, like a little short guy up in a tree. It sounds cute. This is a bad guy. He's a really bad guy. He was a chief tax collector, verse 2 we're told, which is like code in the, in the Bible for immoral. He was rich. Because, but, but because he, you know, he oppressed people and he robbed people, that was the reason he was rich. And so the picture you get from the story is that he's become completely alienated from the community. He has a great job and lots of money, but... Life is falling apart. He's all alone. Everybody hates him. Money is his God. Greed is his master. He desperately needs somebody to save him. And listen, if this is you this morning, if you're here, and your life isn't working, you would say, I'm lost. If you're here to investigate, you're seeking, you can be sure your seeking means that he has been seeking you. So come to him. Put your faith in him. Talk to me, or one of our pastors or an elder, and let's talk about that. Okay, so you see that, that. That first point is the longest point of what I'm going to say. That's, that's the truth about those who are out, around us but outside of Christ. And it should make us compassionate towards them. So compassionate that we would risk pushing in and upsetting them. And, and yet we find this a really hard thing to do, don't we? So let's come to the second point. And if I were to ask you the question, why is evangelism so hard? Overwhelmingly, I think. Overwhelmingly, I think that the response would be, well, it's just scary, I'm afraid. But it's interesting. I think this story offers another answer. A surprising answer. Fear, of course, fear of man is a danger for sure, but an even greater danger, a greater obstruction. What we learn from the story is what really keeps us from this kind of evangelism is self-righteousness. Let me put it this way. I've said that liberalism can really put a choke hold on evangelism, but conservatism can too. As part of the teaching of the story and the Gospels in general, I think, that the biggest obstacle though less obvious to the gospel going forward, is really moralism and self-righteousness. So let me show you. Look down here at this, at this uh, story. What's the reaction to the crowd when Jesus goes to Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus' house for dinner? Look at verse 7. When they saw it, they all grumbled. And did you, you hear Susan's voice change when she read it? It was great. Did you hear her? She kind of grumbled too. It was great. You know, he's gone to be the guest of a man who's a sinner. Okay, so they're angry. But why are they, why are, why are they so angry? Why do they react this way? Well, they're offended. Okay, but why are they why are they so offended? And the answer is that they're offended by Jesus' grace. They're offended that he chooses to spend the little time he has in Jericho with the sinner and not with the righteous. That is, with them. <laughs> it's not an unusual thing. It happens again and again in Jesus' ministry. I mean, the lesson of the, of the famous parable of the prodigal son, which we'll get to in the next couple of weeks, provides the best explanation. Like the older brother in that story, these people are scandalized by Jesus' grace. I mean, there's one point in the Gospels where the writer says that Jesus looked upon the crowds, as he, you know, wherever he was at the time, I can't remember, but he looked upon the crowds and he had compassion on them because they were like lost sheep without a shepherd. And we see this here of him too. But what about the crowd? Do they look upon Zacchaeus and have compassion upon him? No. They they hate him. They hate him, and the implication is they, try, they make it so hard for him. You see this in the story, if you really enter the story. They make it so hard for him to get a glimpse of Jesus that he has to climb a tree. There's no compassion for him. They, they really hate this guy, but why? And the answer is because they feel morally superior to him. You see, self-righteousness and compassion are incompatible, and that's the problem. That is the problem in American evangelicalism today. Our Christianity has made us feel morally superior to the culture that we live in. It should be the solution to this, but it's become one of the problems, one of the causes. Our Christianity hasn't produced brokenness and humility in us because it's religion, not grace. It's caused us to forget the famous line. that, that The famous line, that, as it goes, that the line separating good and evil passes not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart. And the result has been an us versus them mentality. We are the good guys and they're the bad guys. And when that happens, here's what, here's what happens to your cultural engagement. When that happens, you retreat relationally from people. And then you lob condemnation bombs from a distance. Maybe on Facebook. And that's not how Jesus relates to lost people. He has them over for dinner. But you see, here's the problem. Self-righteousness, like this, keeps you from seeing people. Love begins with looking. Love begins with looking. When Jesus came to the place, verse 6, he looked up and he saw him. And looking means being aware of the people around you, hearing their stories, slowing down and paying attention, listening to what people say in conversation and how they say it because you're trying to see their hearts. This is what Jesus is so marvelous at, but the opposite of looking is judging and it's too easy to look at people who disagree with me and to begin to just form all kinds of opinions about them that may or may not be true. Creates distance. But you see, self-righteousness keeps you from seeing people, which keeps you from feeling compassion for people. Looking leads to compassion. We know this to be true, don't we? If a woman can see the baby in her womb on a sonogram, then the overwhelming percentage of time she won't abort it. Why? Because seeing, seeing creates connection. It's also why when I roll up to a stoplight and the guy's there holding a the cardboard sign, I do everything I can to avoid eye contact. Because, why? Because if I look, it's like a, the looking is a doorway, isn't it? If I look, then who knows where it might lead. But the starting place for missional engagement in our city is a broken heart. I mean, our, I look back. Our first sermon in the history of our church way back in 2008 was a sermon from Nehemiah. And we just, we called one another to living with a broken heart for our city. You see, self-righteousness, like we see in these people, ruins this. It turns the message of evangelism into something like, you're wrong, and I'm right. I'd love to get together and talk to you about that if you want to. So we see God's intention to seek and to save the lost. We see the obstruction, our self-righteousness, and lastly, we have to see the solution. And the solution is to be touched by grace. See, the problem with the found, with the religious people, is that they've forgotten what it feels like to have been lost. I've been thinking about this. And here's really the, 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 the pen of what, you know, I want you to pin this up in your heart and really think about this. But it's only possible for you to feel morally superior to somebody else if you think that what makes you different from that person is something that you've done. Let me say that again. It's only possible for you to live feeling morally superior to somebody else if you think that what, whatever it is that makes you different from that person is something that you've done. So the only way that Christians could live feeling morally superior to people who don't share their faith is if they believed in their heart that their Christianity was their doing, not God's doing, and that's the problem. That, that captures so much of Christianity in America, and the problem is it's not Christianity. Christianity, the gospel says, it's not your work but God's work for you. It's not your righteousness. It's God's righteousness given to you as a gift. It's not your seeking him, but his seeking you. What makes a Christian different from a person who is not a Christian is not something they've done. It's something God's done that we can take no credit for. It's grace. And therefore, self-righteousness has absolutely no place in our lives. I told you about joining the fraternity in college, but the truth was, that it wasn't compassion for the lost that led me there. And to be honest, it was wanting to do something heroic, wanting to do something that would impress God. Because at the time, and even, even though I grew up in a church, I believe that what mattered most was my doing. I mean, I loved those guys, of course, the best I knew how to. But I thought of myself the whole time as being better than them, and I'm sure they felt that. I mean, I, I told you I heard their confessions, but I never, that I can remember, ever confess my sin to them. After college, I went to seminary and into ministry, and people who knew me then would, I think, hardly recognize me now, at least I hope so, because I was arrogant and cold, which is why after three years in full-time ministry in my mid-20s, I was ready to quit. I had no fuel left in my tank. I was absolutely lost. And it was kind of the first point in my life where something really different happened to me, where I I really experienced uh, the the, the real solution to this problem of self-righteousness just in my own heart. In a sermon that Charles Spurgeon preached on this text, he uses an illustration to describe lostness that really caught me this week. He says, He says, Imagine a ship at sea in a storm, and the ship begins to leak, and the captain tells the passengers that he feels they are all lost. They're far away from the shore, so they begin to pump with all their might as as long as they have any strength remaining to keep the ship from sinking. And as long as the pumps are working, they have some hope. But at last, they see the ship cannot be saved, and they give it up for lost. And they jump into lifeboats, and for many days they float On the sea with little food or water, lost at sea. But they still cherish a hope that perhaps some stray ship will pass near them and pick them up. They see a ship on the horizon one day, and they shoot off a flare and wave the flag it down, but it passes them by. Pretty soon they eat the last of the food, and the water's gone, and their strength begins to fail them. And finally they lay down in the boat the lifeboat, to die. Now here's what he says. He says, As long as they had any strength left, they felt they were not lost. As long as they could see a sail, they felt there was yet hope. While, they were, while there was yet a moldy biscuit left or a drop of water, they did not give up all for lost. Now, but now the biscuit is gone. Now the water is gone. Now strength has departed and the oar lies still and they lie down by each other's side. Now, now they know. In this moment they know what it is to be lost. Spurgeon goes on to say, really powerfully, and I wish I could capture this well, but I've just had a hard time doing all of this, so forgive me if this is vague, but what Spurgeon says is he says, uh, these are his words, the door of mercy, this is his application, the door of mercy is open to all except those who think they can save themselves. Christ came to bring robes from heaven, but not for you who can spend for yourselves. He came to bring bread from heaven, but he will give none of it to you who can sow and reap and make bread for yourselves. Christ helps the helpless, but they who can help themselves and have sufficient of their own strength to merit and carry them to heaven, may fly there on their own if they can, and they shall have no help from him. Christ will save only those who can claim this for their title, lost. Those who have understood in their own souls what it is to be lost, as to all self-trust, all self-reliance, all self-hope. I was 28 years old and graduated from seminary and half a decade into vocational ministry before I had an experience like that. And it happened over the course of a year or so, sitting under the preaching at our mother church in Lakeland, where I began to understand that salvation really is by grace. And I'll tell you, it wrecked me. It wrecked me. But it was like another conversion experience. There was so much joy. There was so much freedom. And and what happened was, is one of the things I really saw happen is it turned me into an evangelist. It's what caused the planting of this church to tell others the good news of the grace that our little core group had found. And so I'd ask you, just by closing this morning, have you had an experience like that? If you have, then you know that you never recover from it, do you? It changes you. I mean, the people that I meet with who live with the most spiritual power, who find it easy to live towards the lost and broken with compassion... And not self-righteousness are those that when they begin to tell their story, when I sit and listen to their story, they talk about their own brokenness and God's mercy to them, and it's like a fresh wound on their soul, no matter how far removed they are from it. The pain is not a distant memory in their past. It's, it's there in their present. And, so, and, and because of that, so is the sense of wonder at God's grace and mercy to them. See, that's a Christian. That person. You're not a Christian until that's your story. Spurgeon said, do you look around and see no helper? Do you cast your eyes around and see no trust? Is the de- Listen to this. He says, is the death bird wheeling in the sky, screaming with delight because he hopes soon to feed upon your flesh and bones? Is the water bottle dry, and doth the bread fail you? Have you consumed the last of your dry dates and drunk the last of that brackish water from the bottle? And are you now, without hope, without trust in yourself, ready to lie down in despair? Hark thee, the Lord your God loves you. Jesus Christ has bought you with his blood. You are, and you shall be his. But it's not until that moment. You know the song we sing? Amazing grace. How sweet the sound. Grace, grace hasn't come home to your heart the way it's supposed to until you can't say the word grace without putting that word in front of it. Amazing. Grace is by definition amazing. If it's not amazing, it's not grace. And what grace does is it produces this joyful wonder at God's love and mercy and a humble compassion towards those in need. And isn't that Zacchaeus in the story? He has been transformed by Jesus' love. You see that? He's amazed and joyful at God's grace and then compassionate towards other people and and wanting for them the same kind of experience with God's love that he's had. See, an experience of grace like that, an experience of grace like that is the thing that will turn you into an evangelist. And so my prayer is that may God do that among us, even this morning, even in these last moments of our service. And so let's pray as the worship team comes. Lord Jesus, would you come now? And put it upon our heart, the lengths and the depths to which you have come to seek and to save us. Would the result be that we would uh, be filled with wonder and amazement at your great love for such as us? Would you humble our hearts into submission at the thought? Would you help us to repent of every vain hope that we would have of somehow gaining for ourselves some standing before you on the basis of our works? Would you... Give us grace to repent of the notion that what makes me different from the person that is unlike me is something that I have done, rather than knowing that all of life, all of the good, all of the things that I can look at and be proud of or be hopeful for are all gifts of your great grace. And would it humble us to dust and ashes, and out of that, would would there burn a fire in us for the people in our lives that we love, that are around us, but outside of Christ? so that we might become a force, a missionary force of people that take the gospel to this city, as you've called us to. But for those of us here this morning who would say, that's me, I'm the one you're talking about, would you give us courage to turn to you in our brokenness and need as the deaf birds circle above us?
0: Cause us to call
1: out your name, knowing that as we do, you bring life and salvation to us. Do these things among us, we pray by your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Right, and so receive the words of this benediction. Uh, if I, you know, I know I've walked with, uh, with some of you this week and I know for some of you it feels like you're maybe at places where the death birds are circling and at any moment you might collapse and faint, that they would feed on your flesh and and bone. Uh, but it is in that moment if you turn to the Lord Jesus Christ that he is ready, uh, and willing to save. That's what the promise, that's what this benediction, that's what these words mean. So receive them, uh, that your faint hearts and your faint spirits might grow strong. Uh, in the promise of his love. So receive these words. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.